read to you then those few verses again before we uh, have a look at a couple of points with regards to these scriptures. It says, Behold my servant. This is the series that we're looking at. Behold my servant. We are to gaze, to cast our attention. To If somebody says to you, behold, I mean, nobody really says that, I guess, these days. It's probably an old term, an old way of saying things. But somebody comes up to you and says, look, look, look at this. It's kind of what you're saying. Behold, cast your whole attention. This is something important. I want you to look at my servant. Behold, my servant. And he says, he shall deal prudently. He shall be wise about everything he does. He shall be exalted and extolled. And he shall be very high. The scripture in Philippians, it says, doesn't it? He's been given the name that is higher than any other name. And there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's servant, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. This scripture says that he shall sprinkle many nations. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul writing to the church in Ephesians. Therefore, he says, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see in this verse 15 of Isaiah 52, the sprinkling of the nations by God's servant. I think we spoke last week about the fact that this was plural. That it wasn't just nation, but nations. If we look at John in his apocalyptic vision in Revelation. He records this song in his vision that was sang to the Lamb by the 24 elders. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, it says of these elders that they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, what a wonderful thing it is. That Jesus did not only save one nation, 
And in fact, actually, it was that nation that rebelled against him, which we're going to see in a minute. But he is redeemed by the blood of Jesus out of every tribe, every tongue, and people, and nation. You know, in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes on the scene, and he says, he says, we know you're a teacher sent by God, doesn't he? He says that to them, he says that to Jesus, he doesn't call him the son. But he, he says in verse 16, this famous verse that we all know, for God so loved the world, that whosoever believes. Who is the whosoever? He's speaking to a Jewish master, a Jewish teacher. He says to him, doesn't he, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you don't know these things? So when he says to this Jewish master, this Jewish teacher, whosoever, he's saying something there that is quite hard for him to take. Because it was at that time, the salvation was of the Jews for the Jews. But he said, not only the Jews, but whosoever. Whosoever believes upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what it's saying. Out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every nation, whosoever believes shall come. It says, the kings of these nations shall shut their mouth at him. And Matthew Henry comments on this. He says, they shall not open their mouths against him, as they have done to contradict and blaspheme his sacred oracles. Nay, they shall acquiesce in and be well pleased with the methods he takes of setting up his kingdom in the world. And they shall with great humility and reverence receive his oracles and laws as those who, when they heard Job's wisdom after his speech, spoke not again. These leaders, these kings of these nations, they're, they're going to be silenced. They're going to accept of who he is. And we've seen it, haven't we? With the fact that the, the nation of Israel has rejected their saviour and the Gentiles were brought in. They were engrafted in, as Paul speaks about. But it says in Ephesians, doesn't it, that they were without Christ, they were aliens, and strangers with no hope. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. In the Old Testament, God chose for himself a people through whom to make a nation. Abraham, he called out of Canaan, where they had settled after his father had took them out of the land of Ur. Abraham then bore Isaac, Isaac bore Jacob. Jacob bore 12 sons, which are quite regularly known as the 12 patriarchs, the, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. After travelling down to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph, Jacob and his sons settled there in the land of Goshen, where the family multiplied greatly. As the years went by, uh, that kind Pharaoh who had basically made Joseph his prime minister, his number two, he died. And I always kind of, when I read this, I wonder how this happened. But it said that another Pharaoh rose up and took his place. 
who didn't know Joseph. And seeing how fruitful the children of Israel fared and how abundantly they increased. Because of fear of these Israelites turning upon them and conquering them by aiding their enemies. Egypt decided to enslave the Israelites under heavy oppression. This continued for many, many years until God sent Moses to deliver them out of Pharaoh's hand. I think the scripture says that they were in Egypt. I'm not necessarily saying that all these years were slavery, but they were in Egypt for 430 years. But Moses came along and through the power of God marched them out of Egypt. And this is the people that God made into a nation. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, says this. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't choose any nation that already existed. But he created a nation. And he created them so that he could be their God. I will be your God and you will be my people. He created a nation from the people of Israel. And it is to these people, to this nation, as Paul says in Romans 9, 4 and 5, these people who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. See, if you're looking for a scripture that basically says that Jesus Christ is God, then you found one right there. I don't think that Jesus ever actually says, I am God. I don't think he says those words, but there are many times where he actually emphasizes the fact, I and the Father are one. But here Paul says, Christ who came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. And then he says, Amen. Jesus is God. God on numerous occasions then declared himself to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And if you have read the, New, the Old Testament, even the New Testament, because it refers to it. If you've read the Old Testament, you will see that whilst Israel obeyed God and the commands and the laws that he lay before them, they prospered. They did well. God was with them. And actually, <coughs> excuse me, the nations around them actually feared them. But he says, doesn't he, you were the smallest of the people. You weren't a great nation. But the people feared them. Even Egypt. I mean, Egypt's a huge place, isn't it? But they feared them because they were growing so, so prosperously and so strong. 
But this is a small nation, and if you get a world map, actually, Israel is not far off smack bang in the middle of the whole of everything else. But they're tiny. It's a small place and a small people, and he set his love on them. But the nations around them feared them because God was with them. But the problem is, the scripture makes clear, again, if you've had a good read of the Old Testament, Israel were up, they were down, they were up, they were down. A lot of the time they were down, actually. They disobeyed God, and they broke his laws, they broke his commandments, and they married into other nations, committing adultery with their gods. And it led them into times of captivity and oppression. So at this time, when we read in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, at this point in time, you see, Israel was the people of God. And everybody else were strangers. He didn't see him say, oh, his Egypt will be my people, Assyria will be my people as well. He didn't speak about any other nations. At that time, it was just Israel. Everyone else were strangers. Everyone else were aliens. We weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel. There was no hope. That's what it says. They were without God in the world. Heathens. Pagans, even. Wicked nations who served Baal and people, people, false gods like Malek, who they uh, sacrificed their children to. They, uh, I think it was Manasseh, the wicked king. I mean, this king repented, but he, he burned his children through the fire to Malek. And all these false gods who practiced vile things, such as human sacrifice, God, through Israel, conquered many of these people. However, time and again, the same thing happened. Israel rebelled. They repented, they rebelled. They repented, they rebelled. Continuously. And they joined these people, hand in hand, and began to practice such wickedness themselves. How true are the words of Paul in Romans 3, verse 10 through 19, when he says, There is none righteous. There is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. People, time and time and time and again, say, Just need to accept Jesus. Choose him. That's all you need to do. But it says here, nobody seeks after God. We can't. We have no desire for him whatsoever in our own nature. We do not want God of our own volition. We don't. That is the truth of the scripture. There is no one who is righteous. No one who understands. No one seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have Together become unprofitable. There is not one who does good. Jesus says, didn't he, when that man came, the rich man, who called him good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. 
So when we think about those friends of ours and those family members, oh, he's a good person. Well, there may be some human truth to that, what we would term as being good, but to whose standard are we telling ourselves and others that that person is good? To what standard are you saying you're good? Because if it's our standard, it means nothing. If we measure ourselves to God's standard, then there is no one who does good. No one, not one. He says their throat is an open tomb and their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Are we not living in a time where that is so blatantly obvious? There is no fear of God in this world. No fear of God. And I would hazard to say, even in the church, it's lacking in the fear of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The truth is, both Jews and Gentiles, when you read Romans, and we'll see this as we go through this on a Tuesday, all of us are all caught up in disobedience. So the last bit of this text that we read says, who shall believe our report? Who shall believe it? In verse 9 of Romans 3, Paul, speaking of the unbelief, unbelief of the Jews, states, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we are previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. God had revealed himself to Israel. He chose to be their God and them to be his people. And yet for all God did amongst them and through them and for them, they rebelled against him. And they even went to the point of asking to be like other nations in their desire to be given a human king over God as their supreme head. Isaiah begins in chapter 53 by saying, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because the narrow gate is difficult. And is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. This reality runs through the whole of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we said this this morning, in the Old Testament, Israel heard and they saw and experienced God, and yet in the majority, they refused to believe. The most of them they did. The whole first generation was wiped out. They refused to believe. And the words above, uttered by Jesus in Matthew 7, showed that even in his ministry, only few found the narrow path. He said it to them, narrow is the way, few are that find it. 
And it's the same with the time of the apostles. And it's true also today. And this very statement that we've read in Isaiah is said to be fulfilled in John chapter 12, 37 through 40. He says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has received or believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Who has? God has. Let's not ignore the fact. It's God himself that blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And they, of course, had already blinded their own eyes and hardened their hearts. But he did it all the more. He gave them over. And he says, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I would heal them. But there is great hope in this message. God still has his nation. And I want to say this to you. Heaven will have no vacancies. Do you believe that? God still has his nation. And in heaven, there will be no vacancies. John goes on to say in verse 42 of the text quoted above in chapter 13. After he says those things, after he says, Lord, who has believed our report? You know, he says... Therefore they couldn't believe because their eyes have been blinded, their hearts have been hardened. Then in verse 42 it says this, Nevertheless, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Nevertheless. And in Ephesians 2, what we've already read in verse 13, we have this word again. It says, nevertheless there, and here it says, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who once who had no hope, you who were once out of the commonwealth of Israel, you who were once part of the Gentile nation who had nothing to do with God and God had little to do with you. It says now, Christ Jesus and his blood, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. It might appear at times that the gospel is losing ground. I don't know if you feel like that at times. When you look around you, you see the state of the world. You see sometimes, you think, not many people at church tonight. You might think to yourself that the gospel is losing ground. And when we see those dead faces, and that lack of response as we witness or we preach, I want to encourage you tonight not to be discouraged. Christ is not fighting a losing battle. The Lord Jesus Christ and losing do not go together. Chalk and cheese, separate poles. That couldn't be further apart. But he is not losing this battle. Satan himself is not a worthy opponent for the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though when it comes to uh, the relation to us as men and women, Satan is powerful. But he is merely a pawn under the sovereign power and will of God. 
You see it up in the book of Job. He had to go to the bar of God. And God himself said, have you considered my servant Job? And he had to give him permission to go and do what he did to Job. He couldn't just do it. He said, you go. And you do this, this, this and this. Just don't take his life. Therefore, the devil had no power over his life. He is merely a pawn in God's hand. There's no battle that he will not win. It's not some cosmic battle in the skies where, where one minute the devil's winning and then, then God pulls the rope this way and then the devil pulls the rope that way. It's not some tug of war match. The devil has no power over God whatsoever. There is no fear as to the outcome. Christ is the victor and there is never any doubt or possibility that this would be any different. So who is it that hears and believes the report? He asked the question, who will hear? Who is it that hears and believes the report? And who is it that the arm of the Lord has been revealed? In the Old Testament, God chose a physical nation for himself. He was their God and they his people. But as I've said, he still has his nation. Only now, it's not only one country. Not only one set of people, not only one place, not only one piece of land on this globe, but it's a spiritual nation. There's people across time, those who have gone before us, those present in the world now, and all those who will ever come to believe are citizens of God's one spiritual nation. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. Jesus says in John 14, 2 and 3. In my father's house are many, uh, many mansions. If it were not so. I wouldn't have told you. If it weren't. I'm not lying to you. In my father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a phenomenal promise. There is not even an ounce of uncertainty. There are many nations, and I am going, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And that when I come back, I will bring you to myself, where I am, that you may be there also. He also says emphatically that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. That his sheep have eternal life and shall never perish. That nothing can snatch his sheep from his hand. That the will of the Father, this is... Amazing. The will of the Father is that Christ will not lose any of those who he gave to him. That's not only the will of Jesus Christ, but it's the will of the Father who sent him. That he will not lose any. Not lose one. All who the Father gave to Jesus will be raised at the last day. All who hear his word and believe has everlasting life now and has passed from death to life. Jesus gives eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. 
and all the Father has given to Jesus will be saved. Anyone who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. I have, I don't know about you, but I've prayed that many, many times. Lord, I've sinned. I am so, so pathetic. My attitude stinks, my, my mind, my heart, my, my lack of desire for prayer, my lack of desire for the word, my, my dullness, my emptiness, my... I just, I just sometimes crumple and think, why am I here? What am I doing? Why, why me, Lord? And I cry out to him and say, nevertheless, you have promised anybody who comes to you, you won't cast them out. Lord, then you won't cast me out. That's a promise. I'm coming to you, Lord, and your word says you will never cast me out, no matter how I feel, no matter what I think about my sin. Paul said about that, that thorn in the flesh, didn't they? Oh, take it from me, please, take it from me. The Lord said that his grace was sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Question then, I'll leave you with. Has Christ gone to prepare a place for those who might come? How does he know? How many mansions to build if he is uncertain of numbers? No friends, in heaven, as I said earlier, there'll be no vacancies. In heaven, there'll be no empty mansions. None stood in the dark and cold with a sign in the window that says vacant. There will be none of that. Jesus did not die in vain. Nothing in him is wasted. We saw that last week in the morning when we looked at John chapter 6. Nothing is wasted. The costly perfume, if you remember, from the alabaster box broken and used by the worshipping woman to anoint Jesus for his burial, by Jesus was not considered a waste. How much more then is the blood of Christ precious? And if that perfume, that costly spikenard, by Jesus was counted as not wasted, not one drop, how much more? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. How much more? Not one drop of his blood was wasted. As the ointment covered him, so his blood covers his spiritual body. The church of which he is the head. And I just want to leave you by encouraging you in this way. Don't stop believing for your families. Don't stop believing for your unsaved children. Keep trusting in the Lord for your unsaved families. Because his arm is mighty to save. And you and I were in the same belt as they were. But they are. And the Lord Jesus Christ has pulled us all from such a background. Such an unbelieved wicked heart. And if he can do that for me, he can do that for my children. And he can do that for my brothers and sisters. We've got to keep believing. But not only that, if you're unsaved and you hear this lovely sweetness of Christ's work, that you would hear his voice tonight and that you would follow him.
There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And I want to say this to you. You might all be saved in here tonight. I, I don't know the reality of that statement. But if you are to die tonight, if tonight is your last night on earth, are you sure? Are you absolutely certain that when your eyes open, however that works, will it be unto bowing the knee in joy, in happiness, in confessing his name? Or will it be because your knees are broken and you have no other choice but to bow? Because we'll all bow the knee one way or the other. One will be on the side of the sheep and he'll say, welcome. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. And on the other he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. As if you die tonight, that's the two choices there is. Are you sure? Are you absolutely certain of where you are going? Well, I pray you are. But if not, then I'll say this again. Jesus Christ will never turn away anybody that goes to him. I will in no wise cast you out. And that's what I pray. I don't have an altar call. I don't give you a prayer to repeat. To repeat after me the sinner's prayer and welcome into the join the club. Don't do any of that stuff. I believe it's the Lord's job to save. He's the only one who can save the soul of a sinner. He's the only one that can convict you. Not me, not words, not notes on a sheet, not even reading from the scripture, not my voice. But his power upon that word piercing your heart through, drawing you to himself, bringing you under conviction, knowing your sin, knowing that you have no other option, knowing that there is nothing else but to cry out to the, to the God of heaven and earth. And you know it might be uncomfortable for a while, you might be under the conviction of sin for a long period of time or a short period of time, but ultimately the Lord Jesus will draw you to himself and relieve you of that sin. And he will cause you to breathe a sigh of relief and joy as you come to know that his blood has washed you clean. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah. And I thank you, Lord God, for those amongst us tonight who have believed the report. And Lord, we only believe because you have drawn us to yourself. Nobody can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father first draws them. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters tonight who you have drawn to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved them to the uttermost. That even though we battle with sin in our flesh on a daily basis until that last day, you will not let our feet slide ultimately. That you will keep us, that you will hold us, that you will guide us, that you will be faithful to forgive as we confess our sin. That you will strengthen us and sanctify us on a progressive basis. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for that, that I ask you, Lord, tonight, if, if there is any amongst us unsaved tonight, please, Lord, I plead with you by the power of your Holy Spirit and your mighty right arm that you would save tonight. Even if somebody here has been at church all their life who doesn't know you, bring them under conviction. Cause them to know that they have offended a thrice holy God. 
to turn from their sin, to repent of it, and to cry out to the mercies of the living God and that they might know that mercy is theirs through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, glorify your name amongst us and may it be all unto the blessing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.